is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 152 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Lucinda Halpern, a literary agent, and it is an enlightening episode. We dive into all kinds of things, literary agency landscape, and it is, it is It was a schooling for me. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed talking to her. She's a power girl and I just, I loved it. And I hope that this provides uh, listeners who are either thinking of going hybrid, wanting to be traditionally published, or perhaps just expand their portfolios, uh, lots of help and tips and tricks. But first to last week's question, which was, are you a TikToker? So Rianne Stephanie said, eek, I love AK Mulford. Their books are so good. Such a great episode. In answer to the question, yes, I am a TikToker. I started in February 2022 and it's really helped me come out of my shell and get on camera as I know how important that can be for consumers. You can find me and my chaos uh, on TikTok over at author Rianne Williams. Ian Worrell said, not yet, but soon. So this week's question is, where was the last holiday you took or, or the the last fun place that you've been. The book recommendation this week is Put Your Ass, or Ass as it actually is, <laughs> American, American words, Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants To Be by Stephen Pressfield. This is Stephen's latest book. He is the author of uh, The War on Art or War of Art. And um, I'm a huge fan. I've listened to him multiple times on multiple podcasts and I've read every single one of his non-fiction books. I haven't read his fiction because they're not my genre. Um, But I absolutely love his uh, non-fiction. They are pretty brutal, I would say, quite black and white, um, talk, talks a lot about resistance in the war of art. Um, and uh, this, put your ass where your heart wants to be, is, um, they, they all feel much of a muchness, to be honest, but I like them, I like his voice, I like the ass kick that he provides, and I think it's another great book that does that, um, all on the kind of topics on getting the creative work done. So if you like Stephen Pressfield and you didn't know he had a new book out, I highly recommend this one. Um, Yeah, I don't think it's my favourite. I still think War of Art is my favourite, but that's probably everyone's favourite of his. Um, But nonetheless, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I whipped through it. It's a very short book. Um, And as always, I like his lessons and his voice. So would recommend. So, in personal update, I am home. I know that I said that I wouldn't be when I recorded this, and technically I wasn't supposed to be. I should have recorded this whilst I was either in Africa or in Holland, but it fell over the travel days. And to be honest, after a 10-hour night flight, I was exhausted, and the amazing Becca uh, has said that she will uh, do the podcast late (laughs) for me. So I am actually recording this on Saturday the 20th of August instead of Thursday the whatever it would have been a few days ago. Uh, So yes, I am home. I am so ridiculously pleased to be home. I think we all get that feeling after we've been away for a long time. And this was the longest I've been away in several years. Um, And yeah, oh my God, I was literally buzzing with joy to come home. And it really, I think going away makes you appreciate your home so much more. Um, So Africa was just it was a life-changing trip, I won't lie, that we did so many things. So we we got to feed elephants, giraffes. I had a monkey sit on my head. I had a monkey try and pickpocket me, which was hilarious. It used like one finger to like pull my pocket open and look into it. And then when it was very disappointed to see I only had glasses in there. And then it sort of looked up at me as if to say, you wanker. And then uh, off it trotted, which was hilarious. Um, and we did loads of things. We went on game safaris. Uh, we saw elephants in the wild, giraffes in the wild. Uh, a hippopotamus, no, not a hippopotamus, a rhinoceros, uh, a white rhino, not white rhino. It was like a, anyway, I can't remember. There's one type of white rhino that's extinct and one that still exists, and that was the one that we got to see. Um, 
we, what else did we do? We went to Adam's Calendar, which is the uh, African version of Stonehenge is, is the best way to describe it. And that was like a big old trek away. And then we went to see this giant's footprint that was discovered in 1951. And that was, and it's, uh, it's like four feet long, which would mean that it was uh, a 35 meter humanoid. Uh, and the, the local mythology says that they were, they, they referenced the Bible. And I think it was like the Nephilim or something. I can't remember the exact, I'm not very good at remembering uh, exact details like this. I don't really do um, historical details, but anyway. <laughs> It was amazing, and there was lots of interesting myths and and sort of local history uh, related to this footprint and and where it had come from. And uh, I think I will probably send Becca some photos to uh, add into the show notes so that you guys can see some of the things that we did. Um, so it was it was amazing. It was also. It was a short, sharp reminder of my privilege. Um, we drove 1300 miles across Africa, which was over 2200 kilometers for those that work in kilometers. And in all honesty, it was 1300 miles of seeing townships and houses made of corrugated tin with seven people living in a space smaller than my office. Um, kids with no shoes and washing their clothes in dirty river water and it was really tough I won't lie I yeah well I, I it was hard and it really reminded me that I have a lot of privilege and that yeah I don't know it that was the toughest thing for me and I don't think that will ever leave me it was shocking and horrifying to see you know you you see this you see poverty on the tv and in newspapers or wherever and you know it exists but i don't think you know i don't think you know until you see thousands of miles of these townships one after the other after the other after the other and that's when you realize quite how many billions of people are living in poverty and how fucked our world is and it really made me just think about my life and think about yeah I, I, I don't know I wish I could do something uh, you know I might try and do something I you know I'm only one person but it definitely made me consider how I spend my time what I spend my money on how much we really need um so yeah that is probably the thing that is going to stay with me the most okay bringing the <laughs> the tone back up i um what am I doing? Well, I am going to be presenting in York at the Jericho Writers Conference at the beginning of September. So the next week or so will be spent doing presentations. I um, have decided to change my plot, which is very nor normal for me to do before I start writing. So I've got to re-outline my next story and I'm also doing research for my next non-fiction book. Um, I do want to spend a lot of the last part of the year writing, uh, both fiction and non-fiction. And so I will need to input quite a lot as we as Africa was so intense, like it was back to back to back to back to back, um, that or we were in the car. Uh, so I didn't actually get a huge amount of time to do reading or input or anything like that. So I need to do that. It's probably going to be about a month of me fucking about with admin and catching up with myself and doing presentations and stuff. And then I should be uh, right back into uh, writing. And I would like to get a nonfiction and a fiction book done before the end of the year, but we'll see. I don't know. Also need to finish the audiobook. I uh, got partway through the editing before I left and uh, packing and all of that stuff just got in the way. So I'm going to finish that up uh, hopefully this week. And um, so then that will be out. I think at this point now it's going to be out in September, but that is the anatomy of a bestseller audio um, and in terms of other things I would also like to get a course or two out before the end of the year so it's going to be a busy last part of the year but I really feel like now that the South Africa trip is done my brain is coming right back to work and I'm now able to focus I was really struggling to focus on work post, post South Africa because uh, it was such a big blocker like in terms of amount of time away so yeah I am now back bitches I am ready and fucking raring to go so 
uh, let's get on with it. All right, the Rebel of the Week this week is Felix Qualls. Felix says, having lived 30 years with untreated PTSD and bipolar, I have quite a lot of rebellions to choose from. Should I tell you about the time I went skydiving with some classmates I barely knew? Parenthetically, I did tell people where I was going and who I was with. I may be a rebel, but I'm not that foolhardy. Should I tell you about how I breathed fire at a school event and met the fire marshal? No. I'll paint broad strokes about my rebellion from 2021 to present. I left a loveless marriage after four years, got my own place for the first time ever, entered intensive therapy and began my transmasculine transition. It was the first time I asked, who am I and what do I want? From there, I began writing again after producing my first draft in record time, 120,000 plus words in 35 days. I published this year on the 28th of June with no intention of stopping anytime soon. It's been a long, hard year. Apart from the above, I've lost my job, had a breakdown, finally received my diagnoses and began the long journey to mental health. I wouldn't change my story for anything. I love this rebelling. I love that it is about uh, mental health and your personal journey and your journey to like self-healing. I think this is amazing. And I love that there's a huge rebellion in there as well and that it was about writing. Thank you so, so much uh, for for sending this one in. And also, I think it sounds like you have always been <laughs> a little rebel at heart. So yes, I love this. If you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion something big, something small, something in between. It could be a pet's rebellion, a parent's rebellion, a sibling or somebody else's rebellion. You can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. So thank you uh, to Angie Green who upped their pledge and Erica Lott who joined. Thank you so much guys. I really, really deeply appreciate your support. I appreciate the support for the show, for me, uh, for everything that we do in the community. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as a metric buck ton of bonus content, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. This episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about them and then we will get on with the episode. Kobo Writing Life is Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. With people embracing digital reading more than ever before, Kobo wants to give authors an opportunity to let their books stand out with a Kobo promotions tool. They post upcoming Kobo sales, many of which are exclusive to KWL authors, and they also offer lots of promotions that don't require you to drop your price, so you don't need to worry about price matching across multiple retailers. If you're using free as a marketing strategy, you can also submit your books to be featured on Kobo's free page, which gets a ton of traffic. If you're a KWL author and don't yet have access to the promotions tool, email the team at writinglife@kobo.com and they'll get you sorted. If you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast available wherever you get your podcasts and connect with them on social. You can create your free account at kobo.com forward slash writing life. Okay, that's enough from me. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I am really excited because we have a first on the show. We have a literary agent with us today. Lucinda Halpern is the president and founder of Lucinda Literary, a literary agency based in my favorite city, New York. Uh, and I'm going to include a essential guide for writers, the six things every book pitch needs, uh, link and download in the show notes. So you can get that as well as all of Lucinda's amazing tips today. So hello and welcome to the show. And before we kind of dive into all of the amazing questions I'm going to ask you and all the amazing tips you're going to give, can you tell everyone a little bit about you and your journey? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Okay, sure. Well, um, I was going to get to the rebel question deeper into the interview, but it will probably come out in my bio. <laughs> so I'm a born and raised New Yorker. And of course, that's the, the center of book publishing. It has been for some time. Maybe that's going to be subject to change. Uh, I started in the publicity department of HarperCollins, which I always refer to as my publishing boot camp because <laughs> I was literally on the right out of college packing boxes of uh, Freakonomics, which was the big success of the time. And I didn't realize that 
A, both publicity was an actual profession, and B, that one could get a college degree, work in a, you know, at a prestigious house and just be packing boxes of books all the time. Uh, but I did learn so much there and I moved on to Scholastic in an online marketing capacity. That's where I really developed an interest in online marketing for authors because I thought there are these two things and we don't know how to marry them and they're becoming increasingly important. So I leveraged that marketing background um, in my mid-20s to join a literary agency. I knocked on about every door mm -hmm. uh, in Manhattan and um, I got a job, you know, someone took a, a flyer on me and I got to work with authors like Gretchen Rubin there, a number of other um, authors that my then boss represented and helping them with marketing. And really it was a great learning experience again. Uh, I was always born to be an entrepreneur, have my own business, um, long before the gig economy where every young person was doing that. So I was 27 when I started Lucinda Literary, and we're now over a decade old and still running, and we've innovated in so many ways. Um, to touch briefly on that, I started with this sort of publicity and book representation hybrid. Um, a few years ago, we opened a speaker's bureau for authors because we were seeing that speaking was really where one could make money as an author, especially in the nonfiction and business space. Uh, we've now started courses and education and coaching, which I'm totally passionate about and spend 90% of my time now developing and promoting. And we've got four other agents at Lucinda Literary who are actively building the pipeline and especially in, specializing in things as diverse as fiction, science fiction, fantasy, children's books, narrative nonfiction. So even though we were traditionally known for big idea books, practical nonfiction, popular science titles, we've now spread our wings and there are just these terrific new agents building their lists of literary. So that was actually going to be one of my questions. Do you solely focus on nonfiction or are you a fiction specialist as well? Yeah, I mean, we've got some great uh, fiction success stories, um, but, you know, primarily we're known for practical nonfiction, you mm -hmm. know, self, another way of saying self-help, uh, books by entrepreneurs and experts. And, you know, we've just recently branched into more narrative genres as well. But we're always looking for a great novel. I'm yeah. <laughs> Aren't we all? Aren't we all? <laughs> we all want the debut on the New York Times list. Right. Um, okay, so let's talk about how the landscape has changed over the years. You've obviously been in publishing for, for a long time. So um, with the rise of self-publishing, has mm. that impacted or changed the agent landscape at all? Has it stayed exactly the same? Are you seeing any um, ways of, you know, more collaborations? Are you seeing like a diversification of the landscape? Um, yeah, talk, talk to me about what's happened over the last decade. Right. Um, so many ways I could answer that question. One is that agents and publishers really have to pay attention to Amazon <laughs> primarily, the way that books are being marketed online. Um, we're always looking for self-published rising stars. I have a, a great story about signing um, a self-published author of uh, a series called Black Girls Must Die Exhausted. It's out right now, the second in her series with Harper Collins. It was a four book deal, but she came to me as a self-published author with you know, a moderate, but very engaged, enthusiastic, platform, a great book title. She was full of energy. I just loved her personality. And we, we signed on and we had that very successful story. Um, so I think that there are agents thinking in those same ways, like where can I find those rising stars in self-publishing? I think in genre fiction, that's particularly a budding area, mystery and thriller, um, science fiction, fantasy areas that, that I don't personally specialize in. Uh, it's a really ironic twist in terms of how it's changed beyond the proliferation of eBooks is that I'm now most often in the chair of convincing experts who I work with to not self-publish, which is just oh, wow. wild to me, right? Like yeah. you used to think, oh, the prestige of a Harvard Collins or a Random House. Now it's, what are publishers doing for me exactly? And they're often told horror stories, they lose creative control or the book didn't sell because of this or the publicity was poor and I had to do so much of the work. Um, obviously I'm always going to be a proponent at the moment because my business is based on it of traditional publishing if an author can, can reach that level. And my, my reason for saying that is not just the professional editing and design and 
marketing help you get, but it's the distribution. Yes. When you've got a Simon & Schuster and with Random House, you, you are just out there. The mm-hmm. print run is big and you can be visible. And that's really what a publisher's lending to the equation. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. I was just going to say, I think that um, for me, it's about approaching each book or each series and thinking about what the best plan is for that book or that series. So like if, so there are some genres that I think are still predominantly owned by traditional publishing, like the younger stuff, children's, young adults. Um, whereas some of the other genres, there's such a huge market that's indie as well, that sometimes the distribution doesn't offset. But I do, you know, so many of us come to this having been children who loved libraries and who loved bookstores and, you know, went into Waterstones or Barnes and Nobles as a kid. And, you know, you want your book in there and it is bloody hard to do that as an indie. You can do it, but it's not easy. So, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I think there are definitely benefits to being traditionally published. Um, but there is this independent community, as you well know, as an author in it, that is collaborative and supportive mm-hmm. and vibrant and you're profiting and you have creative control. And so it really makes sense um, for, for certain authors. And I would say that if we're going to delve into the topic of marketing and platform at all, that it helps no matter what avenue you choose, right? Like you sort of have to build your tribe whether you go the unconventional or the conventional route to make a book successful. Yes. Ah, I love this. I love this. This is such a timely conversation for me because I have, I I am moving genre and I, yeah, I'm having thoughts about what I should do. But anyway, so I'm going to listen with, with my ears pricked to make sure I pay attention. Okay. So what are some of the ways that agents are working uh, with indies and self-published authors now? Um, so we aren't, uh, you know, maybe this is a lack of imagination. I, I think that we're still as literary agents whose primary livelihood is selling books to publishers. We're working with them if their books have reached a level of notoriety, right? And that could be anything from there's a big viral article on a self-published author because it's a great title or a great topic. That could be we've learned about via referral or through our own scouting efforts, a self-published title that seems to be doing particularly well or an indie author in that way. But ultimately, we're there to represent them to traditional publishers. Now, I think you noted, Sasha, that you sometimes are are seeing like translation requests for your self-published books. That can be another really vibrant, fertile uh, territory to explore for for, um, indie authors. Is it something that as a, as a New York Center US agent, at least in the literary or other fellow agencies, we would take on just for that translation capacity? No. So in other words, the way we're working with indie authors is we wanna take them on, sell them to our traditional publishing relationships, and then explore all of the ancillary rights translation film podcasts from out of that central US deal. Okay, that's interesting to me. I mean, I think there are some agents who are specializing in maybe right sales, because uh, I know oh, I yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yes. Oh, okay. We work with our sister agent in the UK, for instance. She handles all of the translation at oh, UK okay. rights, but it's we have to sell them here first. Like, right. Okay. Clients here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That makes a lot more sense to me. Okay, so you've talked um, a couple of times about how. In order for an agent to, so obviously, usually an author would approach an agent. So when it goes the other way around, what level of success are we really talking about that a self-published author needs? Like what would bring somebody to your attention? I know you mentioned sort of something in an article or a certain sales level. Like what does that really look like? What, What should, if an indie author would like to be hybrid, what should they be aspiring to sales wise or, or? Sure. Um, so I think that that number can be as low as 5,000 copies sold through Amazon or cumulatively. I think there are instances where that number dips lower. I always say that book publishing is an affair of the heart. It's not a science, right? It's a, it's an art, not a science. And so it's not like any number of sales is disqualified for us. But it is, we're, we're evaluating this through multiple factors. It's the book sales, it's the reviews that an indie title is receiving. It's the social media community, 
You know, does this person have something to say that there is an audience engaging with this person's content? Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the article I mentioned, I mean, it could be something as simple as you're writing an article that is connected in some way to your book topics, or it could be a journalist writing an article about you because your book has just for something like struck a chord in some way. Mm -hmm. The most recent example that comes to mind for that is um, a, an author who wrote a self-published book uh, about being on OnlyFans. It was a fiction, it was a novel, but it was about her experience. And so the New York Times picked that up in the weekend paper about like what an interesting dimension she's exploring and was commenting on the writing. I'm guessing that sold a lot of copies of her book. I'm guessing that if I represented that author, I could take her to publishers and say, look at this sort of like this, um, you know, hub of attention that has circulated around her. So that's what I mean by an article. Mm, okay. This is so interesting to me to get like a, a an inside look at the thought process or what would spark attention. Uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I Let's move a little bit more to, towards authors approaching you. Mm -hmm. what are the most common mistakes because I am sure that you must get hundreds if not thousands of queries every single month so what are those common mistakes that you see authors making and and um, how should they like well what would make you hard pass immediately on a on a query package yeah so it's interesting I'm writing my little notes here I've got this Instagram post I only recently started doing these reels at the recommendation of colleagues, but I have one that says, I don't know what your book is about. And I'm looking through the, like the, the bookshelf. And unfortunately, this is the most common mistake. I read the query letter. I don't know what your book is about. Now, a fiction author in particular said, well, I just gave you a synopsis. So that's what my book is about. Um, but I can't, as an agent or as an editor, sum this up in what we call an elevator pitch in two lines of why, why this book now, which is another way of saying what is both popular, proven to be popular, and what is novel or different about this project. So the elevator pitch really should determine that. The elevator pitch should be pretty well positioned in your query letter. Uh, for nonfiction, I really, I'll snap up a query if I see that the author has a platform of some kind, which means credentials, like I'm a sucker for academics. So if I see that there's a PhD and they're leading in the recent science study or they've discovered the groundbreaking research, I'm sort of like, tell me more, I need to pick this up and I, I can figure out the idea with, if there's a, a glimmer of an idea, we'll figure that out. Uh, so it's like, why are you positioned to write this book? Now as a self-published author, or indie approaching agents, it would be as simple as my book has sold X copies and received rave reviews and I have an active following of XYZ. Like you're giving us all of those factors that suggest you have a built-in audience. Um, the, the third thing I'd say that people really, really fail to do time and time again is include comps in their query letter. Also, do they exclude genre in their query letter? And I know that writers struggle with both of these things and they especially struggle with constant. How do I go about choosing them? My simple formula, the way that editors are approaching this as well, is you're searching in Amazon for keywords and then you're finding titles in the last five years that have been published within a 10,000 rating on Amazon to suggest that there's some popularity around them. And you're looking for about 50 plus reviews. Again, this is Lucinda Literary's formula. This is not every agency's formula. But if, we're, um, if you're exploring comps, what you can summon to an agent in just at the, le at the level of your letter is excitement. This is going to be the next Big Little Lies or Leanne Moriarty. You know? So you're already anchoring us in a big bestseller. Now, do I suggest that people say they're writing the next Untamed or they're the next Brene Brown? No. You're not at that level, most likely, right? Unless you came referred by that person. But um, you can be looking for six, you know, moderately successful books that have some name recognition, even better if the agent represents them. You're really doing your research. Oh, that's you're a really, great tip. Oh, I mean, these letters are so impersonal that you would you would think, I mean, what you receive. It's anything from confusing names and agencies to 
smushing me with something that I clearly don't represent and is sort of all over my website that I don't represent. Um, having no personal approach. Like I feel like I'm one of 50 agents receiving a query. So something that's, that tends to work well with me is you're on a small list of agents that I'm approaching maybe because I think you would really connect to this. That feels personal. This should mm -hmm. be personal. This is not, we don't want to be slushed. Everybody wants to feel special. <laughs> Right? right? Yeah. Everyone <laughs> wants to be flattered. Fucking woo me, darling. Woo me. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, given your success with the book, I thought mine would be a perfect fit. Here's why. But unless you're talking about what could be popular or timely, and then what is different about your book and how it breaks out, especially as a first-time author, because you're in a different position, Sasha. You've published before, so you can, you can point to what people are saying and how this is selling. But as a first-time author, which I imagine many listening to your podcast are, they need to be really thinking about the, the gap in the market that they're filling. Mm -hmm. Just can't be derivative and a duplicate of something that exists. It needs to have a purpose to it. My favorite way of using comps is to be like X meets Y. Like yes. it's this meets yes. this. Yes. That's, that's how I start now. That is literally Good how I start. You. Yeah. I, I like, I, I, I hurriedly tidied before our podcast, but I was sat on the floor like, oh, this is X meets Y meets Z. And like, that is how, and then I was like, okay, let's go with the world building. Um, so yeah, like I love doing that. Um, there was something else that I wanted to come back on. Oh, genre. You mentioned genre. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of authors struggle to define their genre. A lot of yes. newer authors do, or they write cross genre. Is that an issue writing cross genre? Should they, um, like how granular, because there's like 5,000 plus categories on Amazon. Do you That's just it. want, oh, it's teen and young adult fantasy. Oh, it's um, adult adult science fiction. Or should it be like, oh, it's um, teen and young adult steampunk coming of age or, you know, like how granular does one need to be in a query letter? I mean, I liked all of those examples because again, what you don't want to do is leave that blank. It's like an SAT test. Like you can't afford to leave the, the answer blank, right? Like you just got to take your best guess. And what I would say is if you're really like, again, the comps will point you in the right direction because you'll notice that the X meets Y actually is pretty specific to the genre you're writing in. Mm -hmm. You're right that every author wants to be intergenre and doesn't want to be confined by the limits of genre, but the way that publishers are thinking is with very narrow categories. This is how they have to categorize books to therefore fit within a bookseller's requirements. So it's all about, to the extent possible, I know we're all artists here, thinking like a business person. And the easiest way to go about genre, in just, just touching on that, how the letter has to be personal point, is you're looking at the genres the agent represents and you're saying that this is in that genre. And if the agent falls in love with the idea or if the editor falls in love with the idea, the genre can be figured out later. But you just don't want someone to leave that letter and not know what your book is about. I'll say for fiction and nonfiction alike, another common error, if we have the time to talk about it, because I could talk about this all day long, is we're not getting at the universal themes. Like, if you have memoirists listening to this podcast, it isn't just the chronology of your life story for those who don't know you. This is like, what is that core takeaway theme that seems really exciting, relatable, dramatic? And... You know that's that's what we're looking to tease out. Even even in a um, even in a novel, I think there are core themes, and I think authors fail to identify them because they're in the nuts and bolts of their plot. Oh, I think this is so interesting. Um, <laughs> really selfishly, because mm. um, it's really affirming for me because I write nonfiction, uh, writing yep. craft books, but I and of course there are already a lot of nonfiction uh, craft books that, well, there are a lot of nonfiction books on a lot of different topics, like most topics. And so even if, an, if my audience asks for a book, I will not write a book unless I know what I'm saying. Like what yes. is the angle or the hook or the reason that I'm writing that, the thing that I'm saying that's different. And it's so interesting that you're saying that that is the core thing that you would pull out in a query letter. I didn't know that. Like, I mean, I have never queried, but like, that's very useful information. Yeah. Like I did not yeah. know that. So um, yeah, I find that that fascinating. Like 
just in terms of like the mindset and the way to approach a query letter like what what is the the core thing you're saying with the book I suppose yes Mm. because the the way we're so that you mentioned hook which is another great aspect of a query letter or generally getting readers around a book and I think that the way to think about about creating your hook is what's surprising Mm. in fiction in, in particular it's sort of what's going to be suspenseful but you know, the stakes have to feel very high for both fiction and nonfiction, has to bring us in, but then there has to be something that we're unpacking. There have to be those layers if you're talking about a narrative product, right? Because we're all mm-hmm. book people fundamentally. Those layers are where the, that larger theme is going to live. So I know I'm asking writers to do a lot with their query letter, but, um, and again, we, you know, we teach a lot of these things because there's a lot of elements that I've hit on here, but you you have to be thinking really critically about those themes, those overall takeaways, whatever genre you're writing in. Oh, I find this so interesting. I love theme as well. It's like, it, it it's for, for me, it's like the thing that you start with, but also the thing that you stitch up at the end. Mm-hmm. It's like that thing that you so... Yes. The, the light little tweaks of symbol, symbolism in at, right at the end in that final layer of editing. So yeah, I love that. Um, exactly. I, I did have another question, but like my brain is racing because I want to ask so many things. Uh, so whilst I intellect on what just popped out of my brain, I'm going to ask my next question, which is... Talk about some of the reasons. You, you, at the very beginning, we mentioned that uh, you are now sometimes convincing uh, indie mm-hmm. authors. Uh, yes. So talk about that. What are some of the benefits? Um, mm-hmm. Either moving more towards a hybrid approach or going all in with traditional publishing. Like, how would an author know? Let's say they've published a couple of books. How would an author know whether or not it was time to do that more of a collaborative hybrid approach with traditional publishing or perhaps try a different series um, traditionally publishing? I think that, again, traditional publishing still has its own lore and its prestige to most most authors. Like one of my clients yesterday said, well, I've always dreamed about writing for Random House. And I'm like, yeah, who hasn't dreamed about writing for Random House? Like there is still something that is really quite special about being anointed and, and chosen by mm-hmm. a major press. Oh, there's that old advance element that doesn't come from being an indie. And as I'm sure you've seen, you know, six to seven figure deals are still being done in, publish- in publishing. Traditional publishers with that kind of um, money to spend will spend it on what they think to be the next blockbuster. So that's obviously a very compelling aspect of going the traditional route. There's the distribution. I would say when someone's in a conversation with me and I have to be in the chair of convincing them why to traditionally publish, it tends to not even be a question at the end of the conversation. I think the first thing that draws someone in is the partnership. Writing is a lonely business. They've been in their own sort of, you know, Garrett apartment or Eiffel Tower or up on a mountain writing their work, voices in their head, characters night and day, you know, it's like this burning desire. And then you talk to an industry professional and she says, I want to help you develop this and bring it to market. And I think I can make it so much bigger than what you're envisioning. And it's like, how do I not want to take that person on, right? You're not paying that agent until she's gotten you the book deal. So it just feels like the best partnership that you finally found someone who shares your vision and wants to make magic with you. Yeah, I love that because you are right. Like we do spend a lot of, that's actually funny enough. That's why I always have the camera on because I do spend so much of my writing day just looking at a blank screen with no like human interaction so although I don't share the videos on the podcast I always have the camera on I don't know if listeners know that but that's what I do yeah because like I you know I might be an introvert but I also do like humans sometimes yes Yes, absolutely (laughs) and one of the things I wanted to ask was about big book ideas. We've sort of talked a little bit about hooks and we've talked a little bit about um, how to shape the, the query, but how do you know what's high concept enough to pitch? What even is high concept? Like, how do you find that big idea? Sure. Oh my goodness. Love this topic as well. And I give a whole webinar on this. So it's like, it's so hard to, uh, to just kind of distill this down. Um, I, would, I guess I would say that most writers are thinking t- 
too small, right? Again, they're in the weeds of their characters and the plot they want to tell, and they're not looking at what the marketplace is asking for or wants, right? So it's a little bit of, of reverse engineering. You go to the Amazon pages of those comps or the book that influenced you, the last book that you loved, and you look at what their Amazon description looks like and you see what the hook is, you see what the draws, you see what the takeaway is going to be for the reader. And that is going to tell you, is this kind of a big enough idea? Now, if we're talking nonfiction, um, I'm going to go back to that timely but different equation, like that this is all the rage. And an example that I give all the time, one of our best-selling authors, Kate Flanders, she wrote a book called The Year of Less, and it was a Wall Street Journal bestseller and it sold hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of copies. Why was that as successful as it was? Well, not merely because Kate is a rock star and I love her and she's a best friend. It's because, and not only that, but she grew her, um, her, she grew her following in a really authentic way. It wasn't about ads, paid advertising, marketing. It was just, I want to build a community of minimalists, of people who um, sort of share the spirit of we've, we've consumed too much. She was trying to get herself out of debt. She was getting sober. There were so many things that she was trying to um, declutter in her life. And when she approached me with this book, which by the way, the year was something we came up with together and it, it turns out to be a really popular title. Um, when she approached me with this, it was just sort of on the cusp of van life and minimalism and pre-Marie Kondo. And so she got to really be, but she had the foresight, right? And, and publishers are futurists. We have to be thinking five years out. So I, I guess I'm trying to give you some practical examples of ways to be high concept. It's really about looking at the trends, then looking at how those trends are going to be blowing up and figuring out, you know, how can I be, how can I fit within that, that landscape? So how does one do that? Because, you know, we I can see that vampires are coming back, for example. They are yes. a cyclical trend, right? So any, yes. any indie author who has a vampire series, you're about to make a lot of money. But <laughs> for me, I love looking at the market. Um, I, everyone listening now needs to drink because I talk about it all the time. But um, I, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of Clifton Strengths, but there is this whole um, Don Clifton. He did like this psychological personality, like profit profiling based on success metrics and mm. my number one strength is competition and but what we do is uh we look at the market so like we we uh have like a really wide angle lens and we do a lot of comparing which there's that whole uh phrase comparison is a thief of joy but not for me because that's how i understand that's how i yes. um process that is my like reality for understanding how things work yes. but for those authors who aren't like me which is most people because it's one of the lesser common strengths how can they future gaze what do they need to be looking at is it the news is it the rankings is it tiktok like how do they future yes. gaze and predict things so something i say that writers find surprising is that agents and editors are not thinking of comps purely in terms of book titles so looking at the landscape by way of what are the popular podcasts what series are people binging on Netflix? What is the article that's gone viral? Who on TikTok is growing a try? Like these are all signs of, of those trips that are burgeoning. Um, and so I think that that's something we need to pay attention to. And it's always, it's tough for writers because again, they're creatives, they're often introverts, they're, they have to have the discipline to be on their own writing their work, but there's gotta be a combination of like understanding what the audience wants. And social media can be a great forum in this way. A lot of my authors or my writers start as being very social media phobic, but then recognize that the virtues of that are you road testing your idea. You know, I gave you an example of our Instagram post that I can't for the life of me understand why that's our most popular. I thought it was sort of like, too snarky but you start to see oh like people like this in my voice or people really love this idea i mean for nonfiction, it's so much easier right it's like what's if you're an expert of some kind what is the question that you are most commonly asked uh and that is what your book should answer that would be is what people are seeking you for what makes you positioned to write a book 
So yeah, if you and the other thing that I'm going to say, <laughs> and all my listeners are going to hate me for this, but um, occasionally you'll get a one star review that will just be amazing. I got um, this is like <laughs> I actually use this in marketing, but I got a one star review that said, "Oh, if um, if Deadpool was a professor, he would be teaching you craft." And I'm like, "Oh my god, that's the." best description of me ever like if I would kill to be taught by Deadpool you know so it's like you you're even if (laughs) your one-star reviews hurt sometimes they can actually capture like the core of what is actually also brilliant because yeah okay lots of people are gonna hate that but lots of people are gonna love that so yeah like that's another way uh just to to look at like that core thing that you're talking about um the the other thing about amazon reviews to interrupt you for a moment i mean authors can be crushed by them but anyone who has like five star five star five star five star review it's we're already finding it inauthentic and too falsely so you want to have someone who has a negative review because that feels much more authentic. And I yes. think the purchase that people are not as inclined to write something that they feel is just fake and paid for rather than something more that falls more in the middle. Um, but it can be, those can be interesting data points, just as you said, like, I want to see more of X. Um, and so that's the next book that you focus on. Like why, why, or this was missing why, or just as you said, that's such great feedback. I love the fact that my book didn't do that, right? Like, welcome haters. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, Let's bump this up because everybody who loves Deadpool is going to want to buy my book. <laughs> oh, I love it. I literally love it. Um, earlier on, you mentioned um, that agents work in partnership with authors. So I just wondered if you could talk about some of the things that you do to support an author. Like, because I don't really know, I don't have any experience, well, not much experience of what working with an agent is like. So just, yeah, you sort of mentioned like working on a title and things. So like, what kind of stuff do you do together? Yes. Um, Well, keep in mind that not every agency is like Lucinda Literary, right? Like we, this was born out of, we want to help authors. We're particularly interested in mission-driven authors, like those who want to make an impact, not just those who want to make money. Those who have a message to share that can help people and change their lives. That's like our passion. So because that's a big lofty goal, um, were there to be the commercial conduits to your getting your greatest possible distribution and audience? That's a, that's the high level. The, the granular steps of how we work with authors are we sign something on and then it usually needs, like I, I say, three months of creating the perfect book proposal. Probably takes more like six months to edit the manuscript if you're working in fiction. And you might come to us and you should come to us thinking that your product is done, but then you're gonna find there's so much more work to do in partnership with someone. So So you as the agent help the author go through another round of edits? Oh, several rounds of edits. Oh yeah. We are editorial people first and foremost. Okay. my, My passion, my superpower is editing. And we love that. I mean, I think that if it comes into us really strong, the fun part is just sort of making those tweaks that make all the difference, helping the writer choose the, the best title, which we do all the time because we're big, big picture thinkers, right? So it's, it's the editorial. Um, it's then uh, once we get a book deal, right? Like it's using our relationships to get a book deal. So that's important. It's negotiating the contract, making sure the author's rights are protected, that you're getting the most favorable terms. Uh, then it's advising on everything along the way. It's being your advocate with the publisher. I always say the, the agent's job for us is like the doula. Like you don't always trust the doctor. You don't always, this is your baby and you need, you need someone in between. You need that middle map to sort of like fight for your business interests so that you can keep the creative relationship with your editor. So that's another really like helpful way we're, we're working. And then we're also, I mean, again, I have like the marketing publicity interest. So I'm really passionate about helping writers think about that. Like how are we going to make this a big success? Yeah. So that, uh, that I, let me ask you about that. That's yeah. sort of the last big question. Sure. Um, like, first of all, how essential is it that an author comes to you with a platform? And let's say um, they don't necessarily have a very large one. How, sh- what advice or tips would you have for an author to 
either solidify their branding or like, I don't know, tweak and grow their platform. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell me which genre we're thinking about because they're different for all of them. Oh, um, let's do nonfiction first. Yeah. And then maybe we'll, yeah. we'll ask about fiction after. Yeah. So like narr so more narrative nonfiction is self-help. Let's do self-help. Self-help. Oh, great. Easy. So, so we're evaluating platform in so many different ways. An easy one is if you are the expert or the easiest way to think about it is you need to be the expert in your field. Some agents and editors will go so far as to say, are you the only person who can write this book? Mm -hmm. Which is a tough, very tough question, right? It's like <laughs> when I graduated from McGill in Canada, they said, well, what can you do better than a Canadian? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm 20 <laughs> years old, right? So it's like a lot of this business is fake until you make it quite honestly yeah. uh, for authors. And hopefully they take consolation in that because it's like once you're working with an agent, once you're working with an editor, we all know there are weaknesses in platform and we can we can work on those together. Uh, so for a, a self-help expert, if it's just an online platform that we're looking at, I'm going to encourage that writers come to us with 10,000 followers at least on any given platform, which would mean your Instagram or your TikTok or your YouTube channel. Uh, I would say with YouTube editors are looking into the, the hundred thousands, like if you have a TED talk, I mean, those numbers have to be pretty big. An email list, I'm a huge believer in the power of email lists. I think they're much more impactful than social media. I think publishers are thinking the same way. You have an audience captive in your inbox, trusting you for valuable content. They come to you every week or every month. Um, so if you have an email list, like 10, 20,000 is a good place to get someone interested. But if you surely have the credentials, you're a CEO who's run a successful business. You're a PhD who's leading the, the groundbreaking study in X. Like that can be enough without having that very public facing social media profile. So that's for the self-help genre. I think for memoir, because again, I imagine that many people listening to this podcast are writing memoirs uh, because many of us feel like we've got a really powerful, unique story to tell. It, it can be even harder. Like then you're going to want to prove that you've got this vibrant audience around you unless you were a professional trained writer who has published in a variety of publications and literary journals. And then we can trust that you're right, that you're a writer first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So like the worst thing you can do as a memoirist is come to me with no platform, not as a trained writer and just telling me that my life story is valuable. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like that's the, I'm known for tough love. Like that's the real truth. Come to me with one of those things figured out, dialed in. And then I'm going to be, and then tell me the big idea, right? Like what's the universal theme or what are the comps? Then I'm going to have the package I need. Okay. And what about for fiction? Yeah. So for fiction, thank goodness for artists of listening to this podcast, the platform piece is just not as important. Our, right, our agent's still going to look at, do you have the MFA from a prestigious school and have you published short stories and won awards? Yes. And there are probably agencies that require that before they're even looking. Oh yeah, I mean, I think so. What? <laughs> I know, doesn't that sound wild? Hey, not for you, not for this hybrid approach you're talking about, because then you just point to the success of my books online. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about for that first time novel, aspiring novelist who's coming in just saying, I've got, a, I'm writing the next great American novel. We want some proof points of why you have an audience around you as a writer. So that, so that's good. The social media or email platform is a good to have. It's not a need to have in the way it is for expert nonfiction. But I'd say for everyone is like have that personal website. You know, some people come to me and they're like, does my yoga website count? I'm like, no, it does not count. Because if you have a website, the first thing an author agent does when they're interested in you is Google you. If you have your own website, you get to curate what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. So that to me is like, it suggests I'm a public facing professional. And this is your first glimpse of my personality and why, why readers might trust me. And so what should authors like focus on to make them stand out, like either on their platform in terms of their branding or, um, yeah, let's, yeah, 
so I just like an add-on what what would make somebody stand out other than other than just like sales or sure I think I think focusing on one particular platform that is authentic to you that you do really well and that you consistently engage with like Sasha I noticed for you you said my Twitter's on hiatus. I'm on Instagram. Follow me there. So you're putting all of those eggs in one basket because you feel that that's most effective or most authentic to you. It's so most authentic because I get to yeah, be so silly right? on my stories exactly. and then live reactions, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think that that's a great way to think about it. Um, you know, one thing, again, there are a lot of different ways to to sort of present and convince an agent of platform or audience, built-in audience. So people will say, this post on my TikTok channel went viral and got X amount of views. What they're not saying is, I've got a thousand followers on TikTok, right? Like they're talking about the overall visibility. Another thing that fiction and nonfiction writers will do also that counts as like a, a platform piece is network. Here are the authors that I'm connected to who can support my work. I'm laughing because I talk about networking all the time because honestly like I would say 90% of the opportunities that have come my way have literally been because I smiled at somebody and went and spoke to them like you know I think and so many authors are so afraid to network I well I you know I find it difficult because I'm I get drained from it but it's so important like just to have those conversations to go to those in-person conferences to you know go up and say hello or yeah, whatever. I don't know. So yeah, sorry. I was giggling just because I agree oh, so much. hundred <laughs> percent. And for, to get back to the hybrid authors, you're talking about the indie authors you're talking about and the reason, and, and part of my evaluation and taking on the self-published uh, author, Jane Allen, who I mentioned is that she was going around on Instagram doing in the pandemic, doing um, book, offering herself for book club appearances. And she did like 50 in some amount of like crazy amount of short time. And it was proving to me and to publishers like I am ready to market this thing and make it my life but I'm also getting the requests like I'm also people are buying my book because they want to have me in and I'm not even doing it for money I'm just doing it because I've got this message I've got this great book so that's like another way that as an indie author you can be proving your your platform I can't believe it but we are basically out of time I'm devastated I could sit here talking to you I know I'm so sorry. You could be my best friend. Like we need to. When you next come to your favorite city, yeah, look me up. Um, yeah, I guess I would say again, Sasha, because I'm not sure this was recording. We have a number of agents that we see literally. They they specialize in anything from children's to narrative to self help. Um, and then I've also again got all of these courses for writers and programs I'm extremely excited about to educate people and unpack a lot of the things we sort of touched on today because it's it's just very deeply upsetting to me that so many writers are not getting the response that they want or not understanding the path they should take forward and they're very straightforward things that we've, you know, seen to work and um, ways for them to realize that. So. I will reach back out and make sure I've got links to all those courses um, for, for the show notes. But Perfect. this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've given this thought. And, and the truth is, I am. <laughs> there are ways to answer this question that are vaguely embarrassing and absolutely <laughs> true. And there are ways to answer this question that casts me in a really big, good business light. So I'll aim for something in between. I think, um, you know, again, I'm like the proper New York girl, oldest daughter who everyone expected would take a pretty corporate, straightforward path. And I think my rebel moment came in my mid twenties when I left HarperCollins and in, you know, before I realized literary agency was my total passion, I said, I'm going to go out and manage independent musicians. Like, I've been a child opera singer, but I had no business. I had no business, like, managing musicians because I was not at that point, like, trained in guitar or any instrument. Um, but I guess it was, it was foundational because I love artists. I love guiding them in their careers. I'm a business person, but I love, again, I I love the artists first and foremost. And we were just out on the road and it was quite rebellious. Like I won't 
tell you about the stuff that was happening, but it was, it was really unexpected again for this like proper Upper East Side lady to be out on the road with these <laughs> independent bands. And, uh, and, and again, it changed everything for me because I was like, okay, wait a second. I love this, but I want to do it for writers where I actually have some expertise and some, you know, some training and I can marry these two things, my love of artists and my love of business. And so that, that rebellion, you know, the smattering of non-commitments that is my resume became my greatest asset. Oh, I just love that so much. I literally yesterday, oh my God, like there is something to be said about the restrictions and confines that society place on us that put us into boxes of expectation and saying fuck you to all of those expectations and all of those boxes because you know like yesterday I was like oh like what where do I want to be in five years what do I not want to be writing and then I was like oh no I can't do that like what if it doesn't make money and then I'm like what are you doing like if you want to be writing that you have to take action and like go towards that path you know otherwise like what are you doing you're letting society tell you that you can't achieve no fuck that defy the odds that's what I say so yeah I love that so much thank you so much would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you oh sure it's our website super simple lucinda literary.com um and there you'll find everything from you know who works with our agency to how to query us to all of the courses and educational programs i mentioned so it's all there amazing thank you so so much for your time thank you sasha please look me up when you're in new york this has been so much fun And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as a buttload of bonus content, then you can by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Lucinda Halpern, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, we've got one of my writing BFFs coming on the show, Helen Scheurer, and she is going to be talking all about her new book, How to Write a Series. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.